Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Matthew Emerson. Dr. Emerson recently wrote a book, He Descended to the Dead, an Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday with InterVarsity Press. Uh, Dr. Emerson is the Dean of the Hobbes College of Theology and Ministry uh, at Oklahoma Baptist University, which is also my alma mater. So it was a pleasure to talk with Dr. Emerson, both about his book, He Descended to the Dead, as well as the Center for Baptist Renewal, which I will link to um, in the notes to this podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but Dr. Emerson tells us a little bit about the genesis of this initiative uh, that uh, that basically supports and encourages uh, Baptists to consider their part in the great tradition of Christian theology. Um, and so that is to consider sort of the broader history of the church and to see themselves as part of it. Um, so I had Dr. Emerson on because this has been something of a of a recurring theme in the podcast as I myself am a Protestant and evangelical and so uh, broadly speaking and so p connecting myself to this tradition um, has been a, has been an interesting endeavor for me as I personally think about my own sort of journey um, and I was also a graduate of OBU so it was fun to have Dr. Emerson on although he was not a professor when I was there um, so it sort of connected me back to my uh, Baptist roots, and um, and then so yeah, so it was a, it was a great conversation uh, that we have together. Um, and so he talks a little bit about like what does it mean to interpret scripture? How do, what does uh, that do for our understanding of this doctrine of the descent to the dead and the Apostles' Creed? Um, and it happens to be a very autobiographical episode for me, uh, just because it connects so many different aspects of my uh, life and especially my life as a theologian. Um, so I hope that you appreciate this episode. Please let us know in the notes what you think. Um, and uh, if you have any comments or uh, questions, and and uh, please please leave those on Twitter or Facebook. Um, and, uh, yeah, we appreciate you listening. We'll be back uh, later with uh, more interviews. Uh, we're interviewing uh, Matthew Wilcoxon on Divine Humility. Uh, we've got Hans Bersma is coming up. Um, and we have a few other things in the docket. So, Please uh, keep keep tuned in, and uh, we appreciate you listening. So this week on A History of Christian Theology, we have with us uh, Dr. Matthew Emerson, uh, who is the uh, professor of religion and dean of the Hobbes College of Theology and Ministry at my uh, undergraduate alma mater, Oklahoma Baptist University. So this is fun for me to get to interview Dr. Emerson, although I did not have uh, Dr. Emerson at OBU. Um, I've got to know him through his latest book. Um, he descended to the dead and it is a, uh, it's, let's see, I was trying to think, uh, uh, he descended to the dead an evangelical theology of Holy Saturday. So it's a little bit of a retrieval of the doctrine, uh, that, uh, from the apostles creed, the line from the apostles creed. And so we'll talk a little bit about that today. I also wanted to have Dr. Emerson on, uh, because he is one of the co-founders of the Center for Baptist Renewal. Um, and so this, uh, this center uh, piqued my interest. Um, I think actually it was my father-in-law who is a... Um, He's uh, at uh, California Baptist University. He's on the board there. And he said something about your work to me. And he said, were you familiar with the Center for Baptist Renewal? And I, I wasn't. Um, and so uh, so I went and looked you guys up and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. This over overlaps with my interests as someone raised Baptist, but studying the patristics at St. Louis University. Um, so I and, and I've met a lot of people um, at my time at SLU and uh 
just in the last several years of people who were like concerned that uh, they couldn't be interested in the early church history or even sort of broader theological uh, trajectories if they were Baptists. So I've known lots of people who've said, okay, I need to become Catholic or become Orthodox. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not here to have Dr. Emerson on to like critique anyone's journeys, but just to say that there are Baptists who are interested in the broader, let's say, small C Catholic tradition, um, it, it's sometimes called the great tradition. Um, so I wanted to have Dr. Emerson on to give us a little bit of uh, a perspective on this and what his journey has been like. Um, and uh, so, uh, Dr. Emerson, thank you very much for coming on. Um, and um, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, how you, what is the Center for Baptist Renewal and how did that come about? Yeah, so thanks for having me on, Chad. Glad to, glad to talk with you for a bit. So, so CBR, we are a group of theologically conservative evangelical Baptists who are committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. And by renewal, we don't mean, you know, it's in disarray and uh, we need to tell Baptists what to believe or do. Rather, we, what we mean by retrieval and renewal is simply that um, the, the Christian tradition has resources for us that can benefit us today, both doctrinally and uh, practically. And so what we want to do is connect Baptist churches, pastors, lay people to historic, Baptist, uh, historic Christian beliefs, uh, including historic Baptist beliefs and historic Christian practices, that they can um, they can retrieve and appropriate for their own local autonomous churches. So that's what CBR is. And just very briefly, the, the way that we came about this project was rather, it was pretty independent from one another. Um, Luke Stamps, Brandon Smith, Winston Hopman, and I, I did a master's and a PhD at Southeastern during my doctoral work. Um, I had grown up in a mainline denomination, very liturgically oriented, uh, but also spiritually dead. At least my local congregation was in many ways. And um, so I, I always sort of wanted to move away from anything liturgical during my college and seminary years. And then during PhD work, I encountered some uh, different different uh, scholarly works as well as um, just worshiping with other believers who weren't Baptist and, and recognized the beauty of liturgical practices when there's spiritual vitality to them. And so began to think more about what that would look like for Baptist life. I also had a couple of Anglican buddies who um, prayed with me and, and talked with me and read with me, who, who of course wanted me to become Anglican, but I, I have <laughs> never been um, convinced of the biblical rationale for paedo-baptism or for some other uh, non-Baptist distinctives, and, and so I'm convinced of Baptist distinctives biblically, including credo-baptism, including local church autonomy. And so, um, you know, I appreciated that kind of liturgical emphasis from them while also really wanting to remain Baptist. And so all that to say, after that, I went to uh, California Baptist University for my first four years of full-time teaching after I finished my PhD, and there I met Luke Stamps, uh, who I hired the year after I got there, and I found a person with common interests. He was also an Auburn grad, which is the most important one, but we also had interests um, in the same thing. So we had interest in um, doctrinal retrieval, we had interest in early Christian hermeneutics, and we had interest in 
liturgical retrieval. And so we began talking about what it would look like uh, to think through Baptist retrieval of the Christian tradition uh, through social media and other things. We ran into Brandon Smith and Winston Hopman, who at the time were at Criswell College, and again, who had arrived at similar interests um, independently of us. And so we just got together and said, hey, what would this look like? And that's that's when we started dreaming up CBR. And long story short, we, we took a couple years, gathered fellows, organized, wrote, wrote um, founding documents, and then launched uh, in early 2017, I think it was. So maybe 2018. It's hard to remember now. Uh, yeah. So that, that's the, that's the gist of it. Um, just, just four guys who want to help Baptists connect to the Christian tradition. That's as best yeah. I can summarize it. Very good. Well, that's, uh, I, it's a little uh, more recent actually than I had uh, thought you were going to say 2017. I hadn't, I hadn't seen a, a timeline. So, wow, that's not long ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's, I, I think it's, I'm almost positive it was 2017, which is hard to believe. Um, yeah. so, yep. Very cool. Yeah, I um, I was at a conference, uh, the North American Patristics Society, and I heard a talk being given by someone from California Baptist. And I mm. said, well, I just have to meet this person. I didn't when I was there, I wouldn't have realized that there were any other Baptists. Um, so I went and talked to uh, a guy and uh, his name was Sean Wilhite. Yeah. 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 And uh, he turned out to be my sister-in-law's uh, Bible study leader. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But yeah, it was pretty pretty funny because like, I, I hadn't really been involved in, in sort of Baptist circles for a long time in my own journey. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of cool. I was like, oh, wow, I, ha- I had no idea that I would see a Baptist at, at this patristics uh, conference. Um, but anyway, right. uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's a small world in Baptist life. Yeah. Well, and so my my second question, as I was thinking through uh, just, you know, what I'd like to talk with you about, like when I was at OBU, this uh, what you're discussing would have been I'd never heard anything like this. Like I did philosophy um, and uh, I we felt like we were the black sheep um, because we <laughs> wanted to ask other questions than the rest of the theology department. Um, but you know, so, but you're talking a little bit about bringing in these things that might otherwise be construed as sort of broadly Catholic or not really part of Baptist life. So do you ever get pushback uh, at, at the Center for Baptist Renewal for not being Baptist enough or, you know, other kinds of like sort of like veil, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the criticisms might be, but I could see that, you know, the way that I was raised, this this was not at all part of what it meant to be Baptist, at least at least in St. Louis, Missouri, or and really even in my time at OBU then. Maybe there were people, I just didn't know them. Um, I was fairly secluded, but. Right. Yeah, I, I would say that we have not received a lot of pushback, but that's also in part because not a lot of people know that we exist. <laughs> um, so I did it early on when we first launched this, I did a podcast with Timothy George, who then was the Dean at Beeson Divinity School and who is in many ways um, one of our primary influences in, in starting CBR. And so he, he had me on his podcast and um, I think after it was over, um, he asked me the same question and, and he basically said, you know, once you, once people hear about this, you will get pushback. Um, uh-huh. And I, I think that's probably right. Uh, this, this sort of thing is not necessarily in, in, the, in the mainstream of Baptist thought and culture right now. 
You know, there's, uh, there's, there's historically in the last 50, at least maybe to a hundred years in Southern Baptist life, the emphasis has been on our own distinctives. And um, some would say Baptist Zion, where, you know, the, the Baptists are the ones who have kind of the claim to getting it all right. Um, and so the, the, the push to recognize where we, what we have in common with others has not been as strong. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that's still fairly prevalent in Southern Baptist life, particularly. But I also think that there's a kind of commonality among my generation and younger where there, there's a spirit of, you know, principled ecumenicity. And I don't mean ecumenism in a kind of way where it's this squishy, malleable wax nose where we just all want to get along and sing, sing kumbaya. I use the word principled um, for a reason. We have a, we have a piece on that on the website where we talk about what, talk about what it means to be principally, uh, principally ecumenical. And I do think that among younger evangelicals, there is an attempt to, to make that a priority, to see what we have in common with each other through the lens and under the authority of Scripture, absolutely, but also without pushing one another to the margins as, as fellow Christians. Um, so when I say ecumenism, again, I don't, I don't mean what, this is kind of a, you know, a, a dirty word for, for some older evangelicals. I don't mean some kind of squishy, malleable wax nose. I mean, principled ecumenism where you're recognizing what you have in common under the authority of God's word. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think there's a push towards that among younger evangelicals for sure. Maybe among older evangelicals as well. Yeah, I was just uh, – I, I don't do too much on Twitter, but sometimes I kind of watch uh, conversations. And there was just something yesterday or the day before about a lot of uh, young – a lot of people who are becoming, sort of, as I described, sort of becoming Catholic or becoming Orthodox. Um, and so it seems that there is sort of an interest in this greater uh, church tradition one way or another. And, you know, so I, I don't know, but what, what, what was coming up on Twitter was like, what kind of numbers are these? Is this happening on mass? It's always hard for me to okay. tell uh, right. um, because uh, I, I don't, you know, in some ways, uh, the kind of people that I tend to converse with are students at St. Louis University. I also teach at a Catholic universe, uh, Catholic seminary, mm. um, which I, I tend to think it's pretty funny. They they hired a Baptist to teach the Catholic <laughs> priests how to uh, do Latin. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but but aside from that, uh, those are the people that I tend to know. So it's you know I'm not really sure if this is a representative sample. Uh, but it would be interesting to know how many sort of broadly evangelical or Baptist or non-denominational type people like myself uh, who were got interested in church history have become you know one of the sort of more apostolic churches. Um, and uh, or or you know uh, right. Roman Catholic or Orthodox. Uh, so anyway, I don't know what those numbers are, but it would be curious. Yeah, that's it's purely anecdotal when I say we have this kind of movement towards these things, but it's not something that we alone have noticed anecdotally. You know, it's yeah. I mean there was actually a piece in the Atlantic um, okay. a few years ago about millennials going more liturgical. Yeah. Uh, so other people are noticing it well, which you know again, it may just be confirmation of my own priors. But I, I tend to think that it's more than that. Yeah. Well, I think some of this uh, will hopefully 
give us some background to the book that you've recently written on the uh, doctrine of the descent. Uh, mm. uh, he descended to the dead. So, it, it, what what got you interested in this question? Uh, this last this little line in the creed. Uh, why why the descent? Yeah. So a, a few different things. I mean, one the work with CBR. You know, I, I've always uh, always is a is too big of a word. Um, since my PhD work sort of in the middle of it. Um, my supervisor was actually a medievalist who studied Anselm. Mm. And so he got me reading early Christian hermeneutics, both primary and secondary lit. And so since my doctoral work, at least I've been intrigued by early Christian hermeneutics. And then when, when Luke and I connected at CBU, you know, began to be more interested, but already was, but then, then grew in my interest in uh, early Christian doctrine, which of course those two things are closely related. Um, then another, another way that this was prompted was um, via simply using the prayer book for my uh, spiritual life. And I would, every year I would come across the collect for the, for, for Holy Saturday is this beautiful prayer about, you know, what Jesus was up to. And I thought, hang on, all we have on Saturdays during Easter, uh, during Holy Week is an Easter egg hunt. But <laughs> clearly the church thinks there's more, more going on than that. Um, so that, that got me interested. And then uh, the, other, the other piece that got me interested in this was thinking through the authority or derivative authority is how I put it, of creeds and confessions for especially Baptists, but other evangelicals. Um, so, so what's the, what is the authority of crazy confessions for those of us, for Protestants really, um, mm -hmm. but especially for, for evangelicals. So in, in that regard, I first actually started working on some, some pieces uh, related to the doctrine of eternal generation, because there are a number of conservative evangelical theologians who have either questioned or rejected the eternal relations of origin in their articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity in, in the last uh, quarter century. And so wrote some, uh, some pieces on that. And then not all that plus what I've already mentioned um, led me to think, okay, what other creedal lines are, are always being slammed? <laughs> and um, <laughs> the descent clause is the obvious contender for that. So I just started thinking about, you know, what, what would it look like to retrieve this doctrine? What does it actually mean? Is there a scriptural basis for it? Because, you know, when I was in seminary, it was a doctrine that was very much associated with sort of deviations in, in soteriological and ecclesiological thought related to um, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And so, you know, I thought, all right, is that all there is to it? Should we just, should we just abandon it? Like, um others have suggested. And I, you know, once I jumped into it, I, I thought, no, there is biblical warrant for this. There is historical warrant. There is theological rationale. So um, I argue that we should retain it and, and proudly declare it. Hmm. And one of the words that you used, uh, well, a couple of things, you talked about the prayer book. I assume you mean the book of common prayer. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Was using the, the, the BCP for my, very, uh, biblical readings for the day and prayers. Yeah. 
And and then we we have not talked so much about hermeneutics. So one of my question actually sort of basically maybe a few of them uh, deal with this question of of hermeneutics. So uh, what what exactly is hermeneutics, and what what makes uh, the hermeneutical approach of the early Christians maybe even uh, like you know I and, and one of my questions is about how Peter and Acts reads uh, the Psalms. Um, what is what is hermeneutics, and what What's going on there that you were talking a little bit about this sort of different hermeneutic in in the early uh, yeah. in early Christianity? Yeah, well, hermeneutics is simply the art and science of biblical interpretation. Uh, well, I should say biblical hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. So, how do we read the Bible? That's that's the basic question of hermeneutics. And for for the early Christians. Reading the Bible was first and foremost reading to see and know Jesus Christ. And that makes a difference, when, especially when you're reading the Old Testament. Um, we, we often read for other purposes, especially as moderns. But the early Christians read the Bible as a, a thoroughly Christocentric document. And they had theological warrant for that, and I would say exegetical warrant for it. Um, exe exegetical meaning they saw it in the text. They weren't just sort of imposing their own views onto the text. At least in my mind, they weren't. Uh, so when you when Peter is preaching in Acts two, I think that's the the passage you mentioned, um, and he quotes Psalm sixteen. It's just sort of obvious to him and to everybody else, uh, well, at least all the other Christians that are that are already there, and then subsequently afterward, the 3,000 other Christians that, that become Christians in that moment. It's just sort of taken for granted that, of course, this is about Jesus, this psalm. And so that, that makes a difference in, in how you read the Old Testament. Uh, it makes a difference in how you understand the psalms. Uh, if all the psalms are about Jesus, that tells us something. It, it makes a difference about how you read the stories that are all pointing forward to Christ's story. It makes a difference how you read the the, pro the prophetic texts. Um, yeah, so there's a big difference in how they're reading the Old Testament, how many of us choose to read the Old Testament. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you you know, on the one hand, if you told uh, a group of people that you're looking at the Old Testament looking for Jesus, uh, that might not seem so controversial. Uh, but on the other hand, if people have been fairly steeped in what we might call a historical critical approach, uh, that, that might bring into relief why even this is actually somewhat controversial. So mm. why is it that we've allowed uh, this, this historical critical um, or historical grammatical approach to over shadow our concerns with finding Jesus or maybe maybe it doesn't but what what role does this this play of you know like when I was in seminary so I went to a a very um well I guess sometimes it depends on where you're standing. Um, but uh, so I went to Princeton Seminary and we were taught to read the Old Testament and never think uh, whether or not the writer knew Jesus of Nazareth was going to fulfill these prophecies. Like it was uh, it was our approach to say, OK, you only consider the Jewish context, you know, from the exile or from before the exile or whenever we think uh, that, that they are writing, you know, in Isaiah, say, for instance, or in the David in the Psalms. You don't. You only ask about the ancient context. You never think about whether or not this has anything to do with, you know, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, um, and mm -hmm. and so that was like I, we were taught to bracket that out entirely um, right. when we did Old Testament readings. So 
you know, some some people might say, why why would that even be a, a practice? Uh, how do we get to the place where that is how a lot of biblical studies is done? Sure. Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, so I'll try to be as brief as I can. Uh, but I, I think let me, let me just think about how I want to say this and if I can say it briefly. Uh so this, you know, that's okay. Um, I would say that both the historical critical method and its evangelical cousin, the historical grammatical method, and there's a reason I, I say cousin, um, the historical grammatical approach has the same aims in many ways as the historical critical approach, and which is to understand any given biblical text in terms of what the original author meant and what the original audience would have understood it to mean. That's the main aim of both of those approaches. I also call it a cousin because both, both approaches um, use similar tools in order to achieve that kind of understanding of the text. Tools like form criticism, source criticism, redaction criticism, literary criticism, etc., uh, the difference between the, the main difference between the two, I would say, is that of course the historical grammatical approach, uh, which is practiced by uh, evangelicals, believes that the text is inspired by the Spirit of God, which is important and which I affirm, um, and that the traditional authorship, um, many many proponents of the historical gra- grammatical method, uh, at least historically, would say that the traditional authorship attributed to particular books is in fact true. So Moses did write the Pentateuch. Isaiah did write all of Isaiah. Um, Paul wrote all of the letters associated with him, etc. So uh, it's very sim- the two are very similar in their aims in terms of trying to identify what the original author meant and what the original audience would have understood the text to mean. They both use similar tools, but there are differences in their fundamental commitments about the text. Mm. Now, uh, the way that those two approaches arose is, um, I don't want to say this, uh, the historical critical method arose uh, particularly out of the Enlightenment. Um, So in the Enlightenment, you had this attempt to, uh, this attempt to uh, be enlightened, that is, to move from darkness to light. And in many Enlightenment thinkers, part of what held humanity in darkness was the church, religion, bishops, pope, and the Bible. And uh, so the historical critical method arose in part out of that kind of context in which the Bible as a source of unified and unifying authority needed to be shown uh, to be, at least in parts, false. Now, that's not everybody's aim when they use the historical critical method. It's certainly not the aim of most people who use the historical grammatical method. Nevertheless, that's the context out of which many of these biblical uh, uh, critical tools, higher critical tools, arose. Um, And apart from that kind of um, apart from that kind of motive, even more generally and perhaps more neutrally, the enlightenment brought with it an emphasis on objectivity. 
And so this emphasis on what the original author meant and what the original audience would have understood the text to mean arose, even if it wasn't out of some kind of attack on the Bible, it was an enlightenment spirit of objectivity in which these are the kinds of tools we can use to objectively arrive at what the text meant. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's uh, so that's that's historical, critical, historical, grammatical. Um, and that's the aim, right? What it meant is what it means for us today. Now, there can be some second step of ac- application of the text, but what it meant is what the original author meant, um, and that's what it means for us today. And then we take the next step, which is not a step of meaning. It's a step of application to what it is actually applying to our individual lives. Uh, and that's really only for the church to do. Now, that's that's very different from how the early church thought about things. Uh, they certainly thought that we need to understand what the original author meant. That was important to them. Um, the original languages in some ways fell off, but in other ways were still important to them. Um, sort of lexical observations like, hey, this verb means this, and it's related to the noun this way. I mean, those were those were important to them. They were discussed. Uh, the relation between paragraphs and sections of the book, all, all that was important to them. So the kinds of exegetical questions that we often ask were still important to the early church. But they also read the Bible with different fundamental commitments. Um, the fact that they believed that the Bible was one book inspired by one author, the Holy Spirit, meant for them that what it meant is what the Holy Spirit meant it to mean. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is God. And so he knows everything, and he doesn't. He, his, his mind is not limited by spatio-temporal concerns. In other words, he's not a, he's not a finite human being situated in the 10th century B.C., with limited knowledge and limited capacity. Right. In, instead, he's omniscient and all-knowing, et cetera, et cetera. And so when he intends something in the Old Testament, he has he has Jesus in mind. Um, because as the Holy Spirit of God breathed out by the Father and the Son, and yes, I'm a Western Christian, so I'm using the filioque there. Uh, but but <laughs> because he's the Holy Spirit of God, his, his mission in the economy of salvation is to testify to the Son. And so if every text of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we're asking what it meant to the original author who ultimately is the Holy Spirit, then what it meant is for the Spirit to testify to the Son, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. And so they read with that kind of commitment. It wasn't merely asking what does the original human author mean. Right. It was what does the Holy Spirit mean through the mechanism, and I don't mean there some kind of like uh, mechanistic view of inspiration. I just mean he's using the, the human author to convey that meaning in this text. So those are two fundamentally different kinds of ways of approaching the task of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Prior to the Enlightenment, there's a focus on the Holy Spirit as the original author, even though that that, that doesn't mean they forget about the human author. It just means their primary point of focus is the Holy Spirit. Whereas in the Enlightenment, the sole focus becomes what the original human author could have meant and does mean. So I, I, I hope I've answered that question. That's as brief as I could do it. 
but but there you go. No, that was that was brilliant. Um, and I even asked it slightly different way than I think that I wrote. So sorry for catching you a, a no, little no, off you're guard. Good. Yeah, you're uh, good. When I first uh, when I first started my doctoral studies, uh, Robert Wilkin came to Concordia Seminary, mm. uh, and uh, where he actually that was one of his alma maters as well. Uh, but um, but he was talking a little bit about like how do we sort of bring all of this stuff together? As in like what would it look like as the church in the twenty first century? Uh, well, and I mean uh, Wilkin is now a Roman Catholic, but. Um, mm. Like what would it what would it mean to bring all of these things together? So in some sense, your book uh, is um, it does in a way does exactly that, right? You you ask some historical grammatical or historic well yeah you ask more historical uh, grammatical questions uh, than historical critical questions as being part of this more uh, enlightenment tradition. Uh, but you do kind of bring all of these approaches together. Um, so I guess, you know, Wilkin, Wilkin talked a little bit about like, maybe we should call the, now he would have probably talked a little bit more about the historical critical, but he would have said that this is, this should be a, just one of the many sort of um, periods and traditions and parts uh, of what it means to be Christian. So do you share a similar perspective? Uh, well, maybe with respect to histor historical grammatical, uh, that is like, is this a worthwhile endeavor as long as it is uh, put into conversation with the whole history of interpretation? Um, how, how do you see sort of all of these hermeneutical approaches coming together um, as sort of one way in which the church can read uh, scripture, maybe sure. Acts 2 or whatever? How, how do we yeah. bring all these together as, as one? Or do we? Or do we just totally relegate? Like sometimes I should say I want to just totally be done with uh, certain aspects of historical, uh, critical, maybe historical grammatical too. But sometimes I get annoyed um, and bored by those questions. Sure. Um, but uh, but but I think that they do have something uh, to offer. So how do we bring all that that together? I, there, there's another huge question. Uh, right. Solve the history of tradition yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and interpretation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's just what we would say about almost anything, which is that you you plunder the Egyptians, you know, I mean, and of course, now we're talking about the Christian tradition. So we're not talking about the Egyptians, but um you know, when, when Augustine talks about plundering the Egyptians, he's, he's talking about pagan philosophy. Uh, and, and what he says is that we should take the good out of pagan philosophy while leaving the, the unchristian elements of it, basically. And it's, that's a lot more simplistic, obviously, for the sake of this podcast. But um, that's kind of the idea is that we're, we're trying to take the good out of what we are looking at, whatever it is, and, and leave the bad behind. Um, you, you know, another analogy would be um, putting the metal into the fire and letting the dross melt off and you're, you're left with, you know, gold or silver or whatever. And that's kind of the idea, but just internally within our own tradition, which is, and that, this is true more broadly of retrieval as well, which is what we're trying to do is, say, identify the places where the tradition has spoken rightly and say, yes, this is correct. We, we should do this or we should believe this while also being able to say, no, this is going too far in this particular belief, whatever it is. And so with respect to the history of interpretation, I think I would just say there are elements of early Christian interpretation that we ought to be willing and able and enthusiastic even about saying yes to. 
Um, and again, I know that uh, you might have a sort of diverse audience here, but I'm especially speaking to theologically conservative evangelicals right now when I say we should not have to completely reject anything prior to the Reformation regarding biblical interpretation or even regarding doctrine just because it might be quote-unquote too Catholic. That's not a reason to reject something. Right. Um, we, we can actually look at these things faithfully and carefully and say, oh, look, this, this is actually a commitment we should share. And honestly, the, the commitment to reading the Bible in a thoroughly Christian way is not something we should be afraid of just because, you know, we think that, say, Richard of St. Victor went too far in one of his commentaries prior to the Reformation. Um, At the same time, retrieval doesn't mean repristinization. That is, we're not trying to say everything prior to X date is pristine and we should just return to that because there were, there were problems with early Christian interpretation. They, they did divorce what they were saying about the text from the text too often. And so we want to say yes, in the historical grammatical or historical critical approaches, there is a right emphasis on being tied to the text, Mm -hmm. but we can, we can do those two things at the same time. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can, we can read the Bible as a thoroughly inspired, spirit-inspired, Christocentric text that is also, it also means something coherent with respect to what the original human author meant. Mm. So I, I think we can do both of those things at the same time. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah, and I should say, I I, I may have heard it before, uh, but... Uh, I was not. Uh, I appreciated the distinction between historical, uh, grammatical, and historical critical. I think I tend to use those as if they are synonyms, and they're not. Um, and it's it's an important uh, distinction that you made there. So that was appreciated. That, um, and I think that also probably shows uh, the fact that f- for a while I I've not been in uh, in an, like an evangelical uh, university or seminary uh, kind of setting, so I've not mm. heard those those terms in those ways. Um, but uh, so let's just think a little bit about uh, the the book itself. So um, you know w- when uh, when I came across this book and uh, I started reading your work, it reminded me of uh, so when I was in sixth grade, my my Southern Baptist dad sent me to a Westminster Confession uh, Presbyterian school, and we had to learn the creeds. And I remember the first time I heard uh, "Descended to the Dead." You know, mm. we with this great problem in our house. I ran home and I said, "Dad, what does this mean? I've never heard Jesus went to the dead or hell. I don't actually remember which one we used at the time." Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and so why is why is that the reflex of evangelicals and Baptists? So uh, to think a little bit about the the use of this word tradition, I like uh, at least in this specifically in Lindbeck's The Nature of Doctrine, he talks a lot about learning to speak in part of the tradition. And I would say that in one sense, I was sort of very well traditioned uh, in the the Baptist evangelical you know kind of uh, mindset, uh, such that. As soon as I heard that, I was like, "Well, wait a minute. Um, I've, you know, I've never heard that. That seems strange." So, if 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 we take my reflex to be uh, sort of um, uh, representative of what a lot of evangelical and Baptists think, just instinctively, uh, why is that the instinct? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I I think there's a few different 
reasons for it. The, the primary one, I think, is very simply that we <laughs> we associate it almost entirely with Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and that for many, especially again evangelical Christians, that just shouldn't happen. We we should we should not be believing something that is a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox belief, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not saying that's a right attitude. I'm just saying I think that is is probably the reflex part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's other reasons. The reformers, for a lot of different reasons, undermined this doctrine during the Reformation, um, and, and specifically. Uh, John Calvin and Martin Butzer did a lot to undermine this doctrine. Uh, Luther Luther retained it for various reasons and in various ways. I, I think he was probably the most faithful to the historic position on it in his own articulation of it, even though his Christology is a bit wonky in my opinion. Uh, I think his view of the descent is um, the most faithful to the early church's view of the descent. In any case, uh, but for the for the Western Church, uh, for for Protestants, even if and I don't mean this like oh, you're a Calvinist, I just mean most Protestants uh, are in the Reformed stream. Uh, right. So so Calvin, Butzer, etc., and the, and the post Reformation Reformed theologians are among the most influential of our uh, theological ancestors and. Calvin, I think it seems like it's hard to say, but it seems like he probably was worried about three tiered universe stuff. Um, I think he was worried about the kind of gradations of hell and purgatory and heaven. I think he was probably concerned about purgatory. This is this is all speculation, by the way. I'm just sort of <laughs> um, uh, guessing here. But Calvin had Calvin just sort of reinvented what the clause meant mm-hmm. uh, in his articulation of it. As did Butzer, really. Both of, both of them, I think, are influenced by Erasmus, who was influenced by a wrong reading of uh, Rufinus, and so I just I think there's a little bit of a mess right at the beginning of the Reformation regarding this doctrine, and it's never really been worked out unentangled. And, and so I think that's a, a big part of it as well. And, and so because of those two things, we associate it with Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy. And because the most influential pro, uh, reformer in terms of Western Protestantism, um, well, I guess it's all Western, but in terms of Protestantism, <laughs> is um, yeah. he, he got a, he made a mess of it, and so we don't emphasize it, and we don't talk about it, and we don't see, that's and that's why we don't see it in the Bible, which would be the third reason why we kind of reflex away from it. Wait a minute, I've never read that in Scripture. Well, of course you haven't read it in Scripture because nobody talks about it because of those first two reasons. So. I, I th- there's probably more to it than that, but those are the the big three that I can identify. I think. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, this is uh, it's, it's sort of uh, interesting just hearing you uh, explain some of this with you know trying to like a lot of what you do in the book is trying to unpack both how we've gotten to the place where we or how we've come to the place where we've come uh, and what the different perspectives were. So at some point you have a really helpful chart of all the different ways this doctrine has been taken um, and and uh, when you get towards the end and some of these interpretive questions and I remember you know uh, and, and 
um, my apologies. I feel like this has been the one of the most uh, autobiographical episodes, um, and it's just it's just an interesting confluence of um, of my life, like <laughs> OBU and being <laughs> Baptist and this kind of more Catholic but also Reformed doctrine. It's sort of funny. There's like all the things that have influenced my life have kind of come together um, yeah. in, in a weird way that I I wouldn't have expected. So uh, my apologies for being too self-referential here, uh, but. <laughs> But it's, uh, you know, um, it, it's interesting that you you sort of say, OK, how do we get here where this makes us so uncomfortable? And you have to go through this history of interpretation, which I would say was one of my biggest concerns about how I was sort of raised to understand what it means to read scripture. We just talked about, well, if the Bible says it, that's that's what we're concerned with. Um, and I I was uh, fortunate to spend a lot of time with uh, some, some Jewish uh, rabbinical students and Jewish friends when I was in seminary. Um, and they would always talk about the the Talmud and uh, and I actually took some courses oddly enough in rabbinic biblical interpretation um, mm. because I was so fascinated by it um, and I was like I was so jealous of my Jewish friends who could say well we read the Torah in this way because of the Talmud and because of the sages and because of the you know medieval interpreters Ra uh, you know Rashi and all this um, and so I was jealous because they knew how they got to where they were and I didn't. Um, and like, I basically, I was like, well, I know that my pastor says this or, you know, you know, maybe CS Lewis or something like that, but right. I basically didn't have an awareness of what you describe in this book, which is essentially, you know, 17, 1800 years of, uh, interpretation and reflection on yeah. this question. So why, why is it that that is so, uh, yeah, I don't know. How do we get to that place where we're afraid of this? And and I should say just uh, as a, you know, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's bad at all that we should say what does scripture say? And you do quite a bit of important work on that in the book, right? You're not trying to ignore that at all. You do, you know, very painstaking work uh, to be sure that your, your uh, reading of the doctrine is grounded in scripture. Um, but yeah, how, how do we, I don't know. It's, it was sort of a funny thing, uh, that, that we come to this place where we don't know how we've gotten to these positions. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's again, the myth of the enlightenment. <laughs> it's this, it's this myth of objective neutrality where I, I have nothing that's influenced me ever regarding my own understanding of the text. And I can just come to it with a blank slate and interpret it fairly and faithfully without any outside influence. And that's just, that's just an enlightenment myth. Um, that's just modernism. What, what this, what, what the Bible teaches us is that, uh, only God can see anything objectively because only God is omniscient. And on the other hand, we are finite and fallen creatures. So our viewpoint is necessarily limited. We're creaturely. We're not infinite. We're not omniscient. We, we are viewing everything from somewhere. And our views on things are also fallen post-Adam. So, you know, I think this idea that we can just kind of come to the text and not worry about what anybody else has thought about it comes from this this myth of the Enlightenment. I think the other thing to say in that regard, though, is that despite our protest to the contrary, we are necessarily, again, finite and fallen, and therefore influenced 
by others in what we believe and how we read the Bible. I mean, you think about uh, what Paul says in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy about, uh, well, I guess particularly in 2 Timothy, um, uh, about Timothy's mother and grandmother teaching him how to read the Bible to make him wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. His mother and grandmother taught him how to read the Bible to see Jesus in it. Uh, we learn how to, and, and to, to sort of broaden that out, um, we all learn how to read the Bible, and this is going to freak out every Baptist who's listening, but we all learn how to read the Bible from our own spiritual mother, who is the church. We are nourished by the Word of God. We are fed by it. We grow up in it. We grow from milk to meat. I mean, you think about all the metaphors in Scripture. Paul calls himself a nursing mother. You know, I mean, this is not an unbiblical concept, and it's not only a Roman Catholic kind of analogy. This is in the Bible, where the Bible describes our teachers, those who disciple us, as nursing mothers. Literally, there are mothers who are discipling, right? And then you have the commands for older men to teach younger men, for older women to teach younger women the faith. So the metaphor of motherhood for discipleship is not unbiblical. And in fact, I think helps us to think about why we should care about what other people think about how to read the Bible. Yeah, It's because we're being, we're always being taught by somebody else. And you can either be taught by the voice of the enemy who comes into the garden and says, did God really say, or you can be taught by the church who has been handed the good deposit and guards sound doctrine. Those are the, the, you know, those are your choices. Um, And that doesn't mean the church is infallible. It doesn't mean that the church can't be wrong, but it does mean that we learn from somebody and it's, we learn from the church. So I would just say to, to make, make, make it very clear that I'm a Protestant. Obviously all of that happens under the authority of the only final authority, which is God's word. So none of that is actually contrary to sola scriptura or commitment to it. It's just merely saying that we have to learn from somebody um, and the somebody that we learn from ideally is the church. When the church steps outside of the bounds of scripture, it's then that she needs to be corrected by scripture and can be and should be corrected by scripture. Um, so this is not a, a, a kind of Roman Catholic position. It's a thoroughly Protestant position. It's just one we've lost because of the enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's quite helpful. One of my other questions on here that I wasn't sure we'd get to, but this just reminds me of it, is when I was um, starting this PhD program at SLU, we uh, a few times mentioned the the Vincentian canon, that is Vincent of Lorin, talked about what was believed everywhere and at all times uh, by all. and, uh, and, and it, and I, it sort of fascinated me because I had never heard that. I'd never heard that as a canon, um, as a, as a rule. Um, and also as I studied Vincent, I realized that he actually has more of a place for scripture, uh, than is often assumed. And also I think that, uh, if we think of Augustine as a little bit of a, as a, um, corrective as well to Vincent, we can place an even greater emphasis on scripture in that, but it might be a helpful way to think about like, you know, how do we, um, how do we dig back through the tradition? We, we try to look at what was believed everywhere and at all times. And, and I, I think the, the sort of the, the simple, the simplistic interpretation of Vincent, um, a, uh, 
basically sixth century Gallic man, uh, the sort of sim the simplistic uh, interpretation of him might be that uh, you know well obviously we can't say what has been believed everywhere and at all times by all people, but it's a helpful way to think through like you know we have like the church is a two thousand year old uh, institution and and the church is the new Israel is even longer right so you know we have this whole great tradition uh, that we can draw from um, and and find the great lights um, but also have those grounded and corrected in scripture right so I have those also uh, return to this um, you know the ways in which scripture can continue to as the reformers talked about you know be reformed and always reforming um, but uh, yeah I don't know I, I'm not the the physician canon is an interesting one to me that I would like to do more work on basically my uh, my dissertation just dealt with Augustine, uh, but I got interested in uh, Augustinian reception um, between um, between his life and basically the Reformation because I knew I knew the way that Calvin read Augustine, but I didn't know a whole lot about anything in between. Um, and so it seems that Vincent has some an interesting place in that story uh, as well. Um, but but be that as it may, uh, that might be a place where we could go to sort of think about, you know, I don't know, some sort of like uh, broader rule or principle to help us think through where uh, how we're going to read scripture and how that scripture is also going to help us to 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 read it better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the Vincentian canon is not canon. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think there's precedent in scripture for uh, the kind of attitude that the Vincentian canon promotes, which is an attitude of number one, seeking unity within the body, um, an attitude of seeking unity specifically via secondly, doctrinal faithfulness um, and an attitude of humility, number three. So those, those are definitely scriptural principles. So, you, you know, for the first one, John 17, for instance, for the second one, the pastoral epistles for the third one, Philippians two, let's just say that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more than that, but um, there, there's biblical rationale for thinking it's important for us to be unified, specifically unified doctrinally, and for us to approach these questions with humility uh, with respect to what other people think. And so, I, you know, I think, I, I feel like I've kind of hammered this unintentionally, but the Vincentian canon is to me, again, another way to combat the myth of the Enlightenment, which is that we are all autonomous, individual, objective observers of reality who have neutral viewpoints. And the Vincentian canon says, hey, listen, you should listen to other people. <laughs> you right. know, um, again, it doesn't it, it doesn't mean and perhaps Vincent wouldn't say this, but I am. Uh, it, 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 when I talk about this, it doesn't mean that I'm saying, well, you should just automatically accept whatever everybody else says. No, of course not. If the Bible says that this is not something that we should believe, then don't believe it. Or if there's no biblical support for it, don't believe it. But if the, you know, there are, there are a lot of things um, that the church hasn't talked about a lot, but there are a couple of handfuls of things that the church has been very clear on throughout space and time. And when we're talking about something that the church has historically through two millennia almost, been clear about, we need to pay attention. Uh, what I tell my students is, if you believe something that the church has never believed, or if you reject something that the church has always believed, the chances are that the, the, the likelihood is almost entirely that you're wrong, not er literally everybody else. Yeah, but, but it's this kind of 
again, it's this, it's this enlightenment myth that, that I alone am left and my Bible reading will be sufficient to overturn thousands of years of church doctrine. Uh, no, sorry. (laughs) Well, and I mean, my, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of like the problem of solipsism. You just end up utterly alone. Um, I I, I don't even know, you know, and on the one sense, I understand it from wanting to come to object to objectivity. Like I understand that, uh, impetus, but on the other hand, I think, yeah, well, that would just be a sad place to be. (laughs) Right. Uh, And again, um, just to make sure everybody knows I'm Protestant on here, uh, you know, people often bring up Luther and the reformation here. And, um, what I would say is two things in that regard, at least, first of all, it seems quite obvious that scripture uh, had a number of things to say against, and I, and, you know, of course, on the other hand, I'm going to offend my Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends, but uh, the, the Bible had a number of things to say against prevalent Roman Catholic doctrine and practice at the time. Um, and so I, I think the Reformation was warranted, biblically speaking. But I also think what you saw in the Reformation was not Luther standing alone by himself but confirmation via the word of God calling others to the same kinds of reforms as Luther. And so, you know, I I do want to say that the creeds and confessions and councils are not infallible on their own. Um, They are authoritative only insofar as they are faithful to Scripture. And if Scripture ever is shown to correct or condemn a particular creedal line or confessional statement, then we should change it. But the the weight of change has to lie with, first, clear exegetical rationale, and secondly, with the voice of the church, the whole church. And just sort of individual theologians in the 20th century and 21st century now saying, oh, I can't find biblical warrant for that, when they haven't done the hard work of understanding the hermeneutical rationale that led to it in the first place, and then they only go to one or two verses to overturn it, uh, that's not sufficient in my mind, even under Protestantism, to overturn a historic teaching of the church. Yeah. All right. Mic drop. <laughs> uh, well, I really appreciate it, uh, Dr. Emerson, and I want to uh, you know, be, uh, be aware of your time. Uh, so we're getting up on an hour here. Um, I would say I had, of, of, as usual, I had like five other questions that I, that I wanted to ask. Uh, but, you know, I, I've, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and I would recommend to anyone who is listening to go to the book. Uh, one of the some of the stuff that really surprised me was how much cosmology and anthropology uh, was in here. So, you know, you go through what what is the difference between descent to the dead descent to hell you know places in hell uh what does it mean to die you go through quite a bit mm-hmm. of um of other work so the uh, i commend the the book uh to those who are listening for um for a deeper dive into those things so i usually view these conversations as uh sort of extensions of my reading uh when i when i go through them so i don't intend them to be straight recapitulations um of of what you've written so i hope yeah. Um, so like I say, I hope that is a way that this supplements other people and encourages them to actually go read it and buy it. Um, and, and then, uh, and then this can sort of help, uh, it, you know, extend the conversation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you having me on. It's been fun to talk about these yeah. important issues. Well, very good.